Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Resolute Square. Welcome to The Zero Line, produced by Resolute Square. I'm Sergeant Sarah Ashton Cirillo of the Armed Forces of Ukraine, and every week we'll be bringing you inside Ukraine's war for liberty and liberation against the Russian enemy, while explaining how a victory by us on the battlefield isn't just vital for the Ukrainian people, but for the world as a whole. We will push back against the lies regarding this war for freedom and take you straight to the front lines of the fight for democracy. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Zero Line. I'm Lisa Senecal, executive editor with Resolute Square, and I am here with Sarah Ashen Cirillo with us again from Ukraine. Lisa, we had a very busy week at Resolute Square covering so many things from Ukraine. We've been having guests lately. The other day, we had a very special episode of Strategy Session with Rick Wilson, Stuart Stevens, and Oleksandr Musienko, myself, coming live from Kyiv. And we also published recently, Resolute Square had the exclusive publishing rights to a very interesting book. So I just wanted to start off by maybe throwing that out there and, and you can let the audience know what we managed to do here in Ukraine. Yeah, absolutely. The, um, the book is 500 Days of War. And um, you can download it from the Resolute Square website. I encourage everyone to do that. It's fascinating reading. And also, you can watch the special that we did on Saturday. We rebroadcast it last night at our regular strategy session time, but you can go to the website and watch on strategy session that really great conversation that Alexander, Sarah, Rick, and Stuart had on the anniversary I always hesitate to use the word anniversary because people think of it as a celebration, but the conversation we had to mark two years since the criminal invasion by Vladimir Putin into Ukraine and Ukraine's resistance. It was humbling and Resolute Square since its founding, which I want to believe was around October of 2022 that uh, we went live uh, as as a website where you know, you are leading the way and making sure all of us at Resolute Square can, can fight for freedom and democracy. I do want to touch base really fast on the 500 days of war. The author of the book, Major General Vladislav Klochkov, is truly a legendary commander. And that was the headline of the introduction that I wrote for the book for General Major General Klochkov that you can find on Resolute Square. He was a battlefield commander at the front during these 10 years of war. He then was the last leader of NATO uh, partnership interactions between NATO and the Ukrainian military in 2021, Operation Rapid Trident. So he's very familiar with how the West carries out their uh, military planning. And then he was put in charge of a very important directorate, one of which I was under his command as an NCO advisor to the major general directly. We call it here in Ukraine the main directorate for moral and psychological support, MPZ, 
But basically, it teaches combat resilience. It teaches how to block yourself as a soldier. We have a million people in the Ukrainian Defense Forces, which is really a stunning number if you look back to even the biggest the United States was during the Cold War 30 years ago. And so Major General Klochkov is in charge of keeping one million plus men and women focused on being resilient, being morally and psychologically strong in the face of so many challenges, being separated from family, being continuously hit with propaganda. Another area he's in charge of is reintegrating Ukrainian prisoners of war after they are brought back from Russia. So this is a guy who has seen the entire war structure for 10 years, who's also in the final stages of his PhD. We call him a scholar warrior. So this 500 Days of War book traces what goes on with the soldiers, what has taken place from February 2022 until July of 2023, hence the title 500 Days of War. If you're curious as to a truly inside look, check it out, Resolute Square, and we have it exclusive for about another 10 days, I want to say. And I was so proud that uh, the Resolute Square name was able to be behind this launch and to know that uh, everybody who tunes into Resolute Square understands that Ukraine must win if the United States and all of our other partners across the world can maintain their own freedom. It it was a real honor for us um, to be able to publish this book. So please, please, folks, do um, download the whole PDF and read it, um, share it with others. Um, This is really important information to get out. And we've talked about this, not for a while, but um, the importance of that work of creating resilience, supporting resilience in the troops, um, both both now during wartime and the, the benefits that are going to continue to pay once Ukraine has won and all of these military members are returning to civilian life. And it, in the United States, we certainly have had a lot of coverage about how difficult that can be both on the military personnel and their families. And to be proactive about this and trying to do all the military can, it's such a, it's one of those incredibly stark differences in the value of human life between Ukraine and Russia. I'm glad you touched on that. And what I want the audience to know, and for those of you who tune into Lisa and I now, nearly every week that we've been doing this. It was start-stop for a while, but we've hit the rolling, uh, we've hit the momentum. And you just talked about sort of the reality of war. And in the column that's coming out from me in Resolute Square tomorrow, which is a twin piece to this podcast, as, as the listeners will hear, I point out that fact, not specifically regarding what you just brought up about the resiliency, but I bring up the fact that people don't understand that the realities of war differ completely because of the multifaceted layers that are involved, the complexity that's involved that ties into every piece of fabric that connects the war is wholly different than even what the best reviewed war films talk about. And it's almost unfathomable in some ways And so when you have unelected bureaucrats, when you have folks who are so-called analysts trying to uh, put their mark or their stamp on a war, it gets frustrating sometimes because we can't always live every experience. 
But at the very least, people should stay out of the way of those who are on the ground, understanding what's happening, and then take their expertise and try to apply it versus trying to force uh, the expertise from the halls of Congress or, or other areas onto what's taking place here at the front lines. Yeah, one of the most stark examples that I've seen recently of um, how Russia, Putin think about their citizens and the value of those people versus Ukraine are the the numbers that came out of the massive number of bodies that Putin was willing to send in to take um, Avdivka. And 47,000 deaths of Russian military in that one battle. And Ukraine released a number this week, um, which hasn't been confirmed previously by Ukraine. And I don't want to minimize this number by any stretch because one person dying in Ukraine because of Putin's invasion was one too many. But we're talking about the difference between 40,000, 47,000 Russian deaths in one battle that was not as significant as Russia would have people believe, and a total of 31,000 Ukrainian deaths defending this country. And I just find those, the comparison of those two numbers shocking. I have more information than most, but the death number was held from me. What was not held from me and what I had reported on previously was that we had a five and a half to one ratio of Russian killed in action to our eternal heroes. Now, I saw where that number came from. I didn't know what the number was, but now we know it's 31,000 to 180,000 Russian deaths in Ukraine as they invaded, as they've committed war crimes here. The total number of Russian casualties, 500,000. So basically, they are not only sacrificing their people, we've known the number, they've known the number, and yet they continue to do it. Human life has no place in the Russian Federation in 2024. Under Vlad Putin, there is no space for the human being to grow as a whole person. We, a couple of days ago, uh, right on the heels of President Zelensky's press conference, where he confirmed that that very horrific number, but also let us know what the Russian death toll was. There was the anniversary of an assassination of Putin's last true political enemy, Boris Nemestov. Uh, so while Navalny was more of a uh, activist, while he was more of a, he was coming from the outside trying to come in. Uh, Boris was the former uh, deputy prime minister. He had served in the Duma. This was a guy who was truly a politician. And to just underscore the fact that there's no space for Russian uh, for human life under Vlad Putin, nine years ago, two days ago, Boris Nemestov was assassinated with his Ukrainian uh, partner in front of the Kremlin. Broad daylight. They brought the killers to, quote, justice convicted them, and then they went free back to Chechnya. So when you see that happens, when you see in, it encapsulates the fact that not only does human life have no value, neither does the rule of law. So then when Navalny dies, whether Navalny dies due to murder, I personally believe it was natural causes brought on by the torture of Vlad Putin. So the Russians killed Navalny. 
but I don't think they plan to have him die that morning. Sometimes the body gives out after being tortured incessantly in Siberia. It happens. It's just the way, it's what Putin wants to happen. And in fact, now Putin- Not many people come back out of that prison. They don't come out of it. And, and now Putin's going to have to find somebody else to punch and kick around. And so what did they do? They took an American ballerina hostage now. This is, this is how bizarre their behavior is. If these people were winning, if the Kremlin was winning, they wouldn't be doing this. So every time someone says, and Lisa, I'm getting very passionate right now, but every time someone says that Ukraine is, is, is on the precipice, bullshit. And the reason I'm saying bullshit here is because you are not taking journalists like Evan. You're not taking journalists like uh, from, from RFEL. You're not taking American ballerinas. You're still not holding on to Paul Whelan, who has been proven not to have been an intelligence asset. They know this. The Putin, Putin doesn't even try to play that anymore. And so now they're literally taking hostages. The people who take hostages are terrorists. Terrorists can only win through terror, not proper acts of a nation. Russia's a terrorist state and the Kremlin's a criminal cabal. If you are feeling confident in what you're doing as a leadership of a country and you believe that you have the support of the people behind you, you don't arrest people for showing up with flowers to place on a memorial for anyone, but that, that people were being dragged away because they wanted to put bouquets of flora down, flowers down to be able to memorialize uh, Navalny. This is not, these are exactly what you're saying. These are not the acts of a confident nation or, or, you know, Putin and his cronies around him are not feeling that they're in a good place and that, you know, all is going swimmingly in Ukraine or you allow those little bits of expression because it because it holds back massive amounts of expression. All you do by quelching it as much as they are is build up this massive, you know, just lurking um, explosion of uh, repressed people who at some point refuse to live that way any longer. The second part of this episode, we're going to be discussing a media story that also came out a couple of days ago on the heels of the two-year anniversary. But you were just talking about repression in Russia and, and how clearly Russia is not doing as well as they like to project. One of the indicators of that is its reliance, its growing reliance on the hermit uh, uh, fiefdom of North Korea, right? When you have to go to North Korea for help, you are losing. However, CNN, and I'm laughing because... I was so angry over this article that CNN actually reported on it, but then I started laughing when I read, you know, a little bit deeper because the truth was was buried in in in, in the details. So now that North Korea and Russia are working in trading uh, arms and and and, and uh, other assets, Russian tourists were able to visit North Korea, and CNN was there to cover it. Ninety-seven Russian tourists went. First time since the pandemic, four days, ski resort, you know, VIP. There was one point where the Russians were laughing, 200 school children to perform for 97 Russians. 
So they're looking through it. They're criticizing it. They're laughing. We can't take pictures, blah, blah, blah. And then in one of the throwaway lines, which I would have had as the lead and maybe even the headline, uh, I guess this is why I'm not the headline writer. I don't know. But it said they couldn't do that. They couldn't criticize in Russia the way they were criticizing the North Koreans. She says, we couldn't say this in our country, but we can actually say this here. And it was so shocking to me that they were saying the truth out loud. Believe it when they say it to you. And how do they placate it? They placate it by sending, you know, 97 people to North Korea to go skiing. And then they mock it. And then they tell the truth about their own lives and existence under the despot, under the tyranny known as uh, Vlad Putin. And what is the intensity of the desire to be able to do that? That the idea that you have some um, extraordinary new freedom of speech by going to North Korea (laughs) and and that, you know, there's just no way. Okay, well, CNN reported on it, but probably Putin will never know. Like it's that kind of desperation to be able to speak freely that sort of that logical thinking that tells you yes i am not in my country right now but i'm in north korea and i'm speaking to a reporter but it it gets overridden by i just have to say how how i feel and and how deeply repressed our people are and that the truth isn't coming out The truth never comes out of there, but it is boiling over. In a different press conference than the one he just held, in an interview, it wasn't a press conference, President Zelensky made clear there's two ways out for for Putin. He loses the war on the battlefield, or he loses it at the end of the barrel of a gun from somebody who takes him out from within. Everyone understands it's crumbling. There's only a certain amount of time left for the Russian Federation. Now, why is this important for us to speak about? It's important for us to speak about because while the $60 billion and other aid across the world is being debated, Ukraine's going to win this war. But how much life, how much death is in the balance until Ukraine wins this war? I like to say Ukraine has already won, and in many ways it has. But for Ukraine to declare victory, we need our partners, we need our allies to continue stepping up because we know, the world knows, you know, Everyone who tunes in gets that Putin cannot win in the long term, cannot be allowed to win in the long term. However, for all of our laughing and scoffing, we can wait it out, but at the cost of so many more lives. And the lives are important. Why? Because these are the lives that are fighting for freedom, liberty, and liberation. And these are the values that we must have in order to save democracy across the globe, which is one of the whole points of why Resolute Square was founded, to get this messaging out there. you start to hear those numbers and it's dehumanizing. It's hard. You can't wrap your head around um, 31,000 lives being extinguished, but you're right to point out that the longer, longer aid is delayed, the, which means the longer the war goes on, those are new deaths being added to that count every day. and there many of the 31,000 never needed to be among those numbers if ukraine had been given everything it needed early on 
when Putin first invaded, there would be so many of these people back home with their families uh, now instead of being remembered annually on the date of their death by those families. And it is just, it's abhorrent. The, The idea that the speaker adjourned for two weeks and that Congress went home because, <laughs> uh, I don't know. I don't know why Congress needed another vacation. They seem to ha- get plenty of, le- they sure as hell get a lot more rest than most of us do, and definitely you, Sarah. But during those two weeks, how many more deaths are happening that don't need to happen if we would just move forward with the goddamn aid and and end this? You know how you said it, it, it's almost a number too large to think about, the 31,000, let alone 180,000, let alone to think about what uh, the United States uh, lost in, in, in World War II and, and, and the Allies lost in World War II. Two, I thought about this, and it was staggering because I ran it through my mind to understand what that meant. Like, how can we truly visualize in a way? It would be as if, on September 11th, 2001, Canada decided to invade us. And then, instead of 3,000 people dying, 10 times that number died. And we still couldn't get Canada to leave us alone. And they were still attempting to go ahead and occupy Minnesota, occupy the Pacific Northwest, occupy you know Detroit, occupy Vermont. And, and, and that's the way I was able to visualize it. How would people respond? Knowing how angry we are that 3,000 innocent Americans were killed by terrorists under uh, this guise of a so-called liberation, right? Just like Putin was claiming so-called liberation. How would we feel if it was 10 times that number and two years after 9-11? So on 9-11-2003, we're still fighting, still having people die, and still struggling to hold back the Canadians. That is what Ukraine is going through with Russia right now. It's it's just devastating. And and because you mentioned 9/11, I I will mention NATO and the value of that we talked a lot about this last week, the um imperative of NATO staying united, adding more members, welcome Sweden. Very, very happy to have you among the nations of NATO. But the U.S. Uh, involvement in NATO is not assured. And our willingness to come to the aid of other NATO nations, which will be threatened by Putin if he is allowed to advance in Ukraine, On 9-11, that was the one and only time Article 5 has ever been used. And that was because the United States, the most powerful nation in NATO, everyone else came to our aid and said that they would be involved in bringing the people involved in 9-11 to justice. The one time. That's not a tiny country like Sweden that desperately would need the aid of all the other NATO countries. It was all of those countries being willing to stand alongside the United States because they understood that truly it 
it is an attack on all if one country is attacked and we have to Ukraine is not a NATO nation, but it borders. And we have to be aware that anything that we do to aid Ukraine now is aiding our NATO members. It it truly is this, uh, you know, treaty organization. It's truly the sense uh, that everyone's in it together. And while the latest National Defense Authorization Act precludes now the ability to unilaterally pull out of NATO. A president cannot just remove us from NATO. Doesn't mean that people have to act on behalf of the other countries. And Article 5 only brings together the discussion and then the idea of how the the act is going to be. And so for all the bluster that's taking place among certain presidential campaigns, specifically, obviously, Donald Trump lashes out at NATO. One of the most concerning parts isn't that he can theoretically pull the U.S. out of NATO. He can't. It's not going to happen. But what he can do as the commander-in-chief of the armed forces of the United States, I was about to say, (laughs) but as commander-in-chief of the armed forces of the United States of America, the strongest, greatest military in the world, he can choose to just keep it on the sidelines. And that is even more dangerous in some ways than pulling out of the organization because then you're a dead weight on it and nobody is going to then act for you if and when another terror attack comes, if and when you are directly attacked. And for all the discussion of what's taking place around the world, no one doubts that the U.S. still has enemies. The U.S. clearly has enemies that want to do ill will. China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, so on and so on and so on, plus the non-state actors that have never stopped aiming for us since the late 90s. As you know, as many know who listen to Resolute Square, the attack on the World Trade Center in 2001 was not the first attack on the World Trade Center. Uh, A bomb was driven into it in, I want to believe, 1998 or 1999, which did significant damage to it as well. Speaking of staying united, there's been something on my mind for the last few days that I would like to get to now. And it's an article that ran in the New York Times that was stunning and by the way, again, to the listeners, you know, I've been, I've been hyping Resolute Square, but I'm really into the writing now. We've been doing some good work. And I have a new column coming out tomorrow that goes deep into this. Which will be today. Oh, yes, which will be this. today. Yes, exactly. It'll be today. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. Which will be coming out today, same time, I guess, as, as the podcast does. Read it. It's about a guy named Kyle Parker. So the New York Times does this story of, of, about this somewhat anonymous U.S. Commission. It's called the Helsinki Commission. It was formed in the 1970s as a bulwark against uh, the Soviet Union and four Russian activists. And it's an independent agency funded by the U.S. government and led by members of Congress. It's by uh, bicameral and it is bipartisan. They've done a tremendous amount of good work. And with that good work, Ukraine has been their focus. So uh, in 2022, when the full-scale invasion broke out, the Senate leadership was in charge because the Democrats had the Senate majority at the time. It was Senator Ben Cardin. Then every Congress, it rotates between the House and the Senate. So now it's the House of Representatives. The House has the GOP majority. It's Representative Joe Wilson of South Carolina. Full disclosure, I've briefed the Helsinki Commission staffers many times. I've shaken uh, Congressman Wilson's hand. I've shaken Senator uh, Cardin's hand. I've also engaged with Representative Wilson's regular congressional staff, separate from the Helsinki Commission, 
on Ukraine issues. So before I start talking about this, I want to make it clear that up until this point, the Helsinki Commission has been one of the leading lights on both the GOP side and Dem side in working together in pushing forward for uh, a victory, not just don't let Ukrainians die, but a victory to the point that Representative Wilson even put a resolution of creating a bust of President Zelensky to put in the Hall of, of Congress. As such, a couple of days ago, New York Times, February 26, 2024, runs a story about a guy named Kyle Parker. Kyle Parker is the chief Senate advisor to the Helsinki Commission, and he was formerly chief of staff. He's come over here seven times to Ukraine, delivered $30,000 in non-lethal aid to the front lines. His family is Ukrainian. He, his family used to live in Kharkiv, right? He was also demanded by Vladimir Putin to be turned over to the Russians in 2018 for being the architect of the Maginsky Act, which creates financial sanctions against the Russian Federation for violations of human rights. This is a guy who was so in the crosshairs of Putin that Putin demanded he get turned over by name to the U.S. government for interrogation. What happens? I mean, this is just stunning. This guy's a hero. This guy, Kyle Parker, hero. And he was coming over to Ukraine on his personal time because of his family ties, uh, not on his government time. He made it very clear. New York Times runs an article. Members of that were appointed by Congressman Wilson. So Congressman Wilson has taken on a very statesmanlike approach to Ukraine funding and everything regarding Ukraine's victory. A couple of his appointees write to the media, put out a confidential report, suggests that Kyle Parker should be prosecuted for acting as an unregistered foreign agent, potentially an intelligence asset of a foreign country, totally maligning this guy. New York Times runs with the story. But a really crazy aspect of this, this report was written after Kyle Parker had already written a report pointing out a significant number of aspects that were negatively affecting the Helsinki Commission as a whole by the people who accused him of, of these really horrific acts. And all I could think back to was when J.D. Vance accused me personally of being an intelligence asset. And I thought at the time, how do these GOP staffers try to weaponize the federal government when the GOP literally has a subcommittee against the weaponization of the federal government? It, it, it was mind-blowing. And in the case of me, and, and I was going to actually reach over for it because it's next to me, but I'm not going to do it. <laughs> we talked about it. I wrote about it. Uh, Vance attacked me as being an intelligence asset while we were in the middle of the most successful information operation of the war, one which partly was responsible for me just receiving the commander in chief, the Ukrainian commander in chief's Golden Cross honor, a very exclusive honor from the commander in chief of the Ukrainian armed forces, while uh, Vance or staffers, whoever was accusing me of being a spy. What happens now? Kyle Parker comes over seven trips, trying to save his family, bringing non kinetic supplies to the front, reporting back, having meetings, being very clear that he was not here in official capacity. And they tried to get him fired, thrown off, and in fact, had his reputation impugned by the New York Times. We can't keep, how, how do we keep NATO together when we can't even keep the most, what was until this, this, this situation came about, the most effective committee, the Helsinki Commission, 
under Chairman Wilson, under Senator Cardine, under Senator Wicker, and, and Representative Cohen as well from uh, Tennessee, was the most effective organization in, in, in broaching the issues that we're facing here in Ukraine. And it blows apart because of this interesting gossip and, and finger pointing. Kyle Parker is not only no you know, foreign agent for any country, he's an American patriot who is, you know, would be taken and put in the gulag next to Navalny. That's how valuable Kyle Parker is. We know because Putin wanted him turned over by name. Kyle Parker should be named a hero of Ukraine for his work on what he's done against Russia, let alone have this happening. I'm making a plea, folks, after having been, had terrible allegations thrown at me personally, and now, in full disclosure, Kyle Parker, an acquaintance. I wouldn't call him a friend, definitely an acquaintance of mine. Seeing an acquaintance be tarred and feathered by the New York Times. Folks, we need to stay focused on what's important. Victory, bipartisanship, and understanding that whatever the heck is happening in the halls of Congress behind the scenes, uh, whether it's, it's, you know, the horrific sexual things going on, finger pointing, thank God George Santos is out, you know, finally. But good God, get back from vacation, get back to work, pass the budget so we don't have a shutdown, pass the national security supplements, secure the border, do everything that's taken, actually govern them. And leave the heroes of Ukraine like Kyle Parker alone. And New York Times, I defend you in Ukraine all the time. They know this. I'm not going to use names, but obviously the New York, I, I was in the New York Times headquarters giving them briefings in December when I was in the U.S. talking about their coverage. Do I believe they should be maligned as much as they are? No. Do I believe they should be covering stories about congressional gossip? Absolutely not. They're not punchbowl news. I turn into punchbowl for this sort of thing, not the New York Times. And I'm sorry for this anger, but with 31,000 dead, with more of my colleagues and comrades dying every day, and I have some, some nameless, faceless bureaucrats attacking a guy who's literally saving lives out here and letting the New York Times, New York Times running this as a major story is one of the most incomprehensible things I've seen of this war. And I'm so angry about it. We were going to have a very special guest this week. His, his name is Maxim Estravi. He is a author, journalist, Ukrainian thought leader truly one of the thought leaders here in Ukraine. And I actually bumped him because I wanted to address this with the Resolute Square audience. This is not a case of Republicans and Democrats. It's a case of people being jealous, snippy, and snide while Ukrainians are dying and Americans are being impugned through nothing more than rumors, gossip, and innuendo. This has to stop. This is why we're on the precipice of falling into fascism. Right here, this. The way the story was reported and you can you can report this story as just factual pieces, but I, I pulled out and and necessary information. I pulled out a couple of lines from the the Times story that just struck me as so intentionally incendiary against Kyle Parker. When you read the story, you get the sense that Kyle Parker is a major gun runner who somehow was taking, you know, copious amounts of lethal weapons to the front lines of Ukraine and that, you know, the, the State Department had warned him against doing this. With What the New York Times reported was alongside how dangerous it was for Kyle to go and that the State Department, uh, they included that the State Department 
recommended against this. The State Department recommends against all Americans going to the front lines of the war in Ukraine. That might shock a lot of people, but our State Department has a tendency to tell us where we might get killed when we go overseas, and they advise against doing that. State Department, it's not illegal to go to the front. It's not illegal for Americans to serve within the armed forces of Ukraine. We don't have mercenaries here. We don't have gun runners. We don't have private military contractors. We have people who believe in freedom. We have folks who believe and understand and know that the United States is the greatest country in the world and that Ukraine is following in these footsteps. I'm sorry I have to run. Thank you to everybody from Resolute Square. And thank you, Lisa. And we'll see you next week. Although Sarah had to leave and we may or may not ever know why it is that she needed to depart. But Sarah, um, as always, thank you so much for being here. I just wanted to wrap this by putting a button on the conversation we were having about Kyle Parker, because we talked about what he wasn't taking for weapons. These were not lethal weapons. There was nothing uh, illegal about him going to the front. He was not defying the State Department. What he was taking, which was reported very far down in the Times story, so you might have missed it if you didn't make it all the way to the end, was he he was uh, taking rangefinders, which are specialized binoculars and monoculars that he purchased off Amazon. He's this is not international weapons dealing. He he purchased binoculars and monoculars off Amazon. And the other thing that he took them were wind gauges. Nothing lethal at all about wind gauges, nothing wrong with him taking those from the United States into Ukraine and passing them along to people on the front line. It is just so very disappointing when information like that uh, is reported by the media far enough down in their stories or late enough in a video report that people have kind of already formed a decision about whether or not someone has done something good or bad and leaves the impression that there was something nefarious going on. So just wanted to add that to the end. Make sure you read uh, Sarah's article and all the articles in the newsletter that's coming out from Resolute Square today. And thank you again for being here with us. We'll see you next Thursday. Thank you for listening to The Zero Line, a podcast brought to you by Resolute Square. Resolute Square's mission is to inform, lead, and connect. And The Zero Line is one of the tools that followers of Resolute Square can use to fight back against tyranny while championing democracy. Please like and subscribe to The Zero Line wherever you podcast and follow us on Twitter at Resolute Square or visit ResoluteSquare.com. Thanks once more for hanging out at The Zero Line.